Welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. If you're listening to this at the time of the show's recording, the Neowise Comet is in the sky. And you should check it out and do some stargazing at the nearest opportunity. In the meantime, I have some spooks. All improvised. All with titles I've never seen before. This first title's called Fuck Me Up. party last night. It's been a non-stop party for ten nights straight. Partying was like a lifestyle all its own. You'd wake up at the crack of noon, maybe exercise if you're into that sort of thing. Have some B vitamins, some good brunch or lunch, depending on when you woke up. I always called the first meal of the day uh, breakfast, even if I didn't have it until 3 p.m. But this wet last week has been turning me into a party animal. He's been at a Dave's house. His parents were away, uh, traveling for a month. So every night he's just been having these parties. Now, I always wouldn't stay at the house, you know. At one point, I had to call it a day and get some sleep. A lot of people just crashed there and lived there. It was like a commune situation was uh, happening there, you know? But nevertheless, I'd go out to Dave's house and party every night. I wanted people to remember Dave's parties. If I met someone my older age who lived in the same town that I did, I wanted to be all like, oh, did you know Dave? And then they'd say, yeah. And I'd be all like, did you go to his parties? And they'd be like, oh, oh yes. You see, Dave's parties had their own lore to them. Their own mythology. The way Candace would dance on the tables. 
way the shag carpeting would have white powder embedded into it. And you couldn't tell if it was cocaine or salt with tequilas. That was part of the mystique of Dave's parties. Every night offered something new. My favorite nights of party at Dave's were on Fridays and Saturdays. Fridays was at, at the end of people's work weeks, so that was when they were ready to get rambunctious. But on Saturdays, everyone was getting boozed up, even more so than on Fridays. So out of all the nights, Saturdays were the days to let loose. At every imaginable capacity, whether it was sexually, physically through dancing, through substance, or through provocative conversations about television. Yes, Dave's nightly parties took all shapes and sizes. But this one Saturday when I went, it really, it really fucked me up. You see, the party went off as usual, you know. Start a little bit light in the afternoon, and then it would pick up as the night progressed. There'd be a DJ who wasn't always that good, but you know, I appreciated the effort, personally. be some closed off spaces in the house that only VIP guests could go to, which is really just close friends of Dave's, just so they could find a quiet spot to like smoke a bowl or something. But I was always on the dance floor. Tearing the floor open, like tearing a rift in space-time. That's what I consider myself to be as a dancer. Maybe not everyone would agree, but, you know. Needless to say, I boogied. And I boogied hard. And when I went to Dave's parties, I was ready for anything. So, uh... As the night progressed, I was getting uh, very inebriated, you know, doing a lot of the cannabis as well. And I even took a pill that I found behind a couch cushion. Until my friend Bert came and approached me, and he said, Hey, do you want to try something with me? And I was just like, Hells yes. So I followed him past the bathrooms to a more quieter area, you know kind of in the garage. There are still people there, but less people, because not a lot of people wanted to be outside, need they get caught by any uh, law enforcement agencies that would patrol the streets at that time, or any sort of neighbors that will call those agencies and shut the party down. And everyone who appreciated Dave's parties didn't want to shut down. So they stayed on property and indoors to the best of their ability. 
the party like Dave's could never be tamed. So by a ping pong table that was being repurposed as a beer pong table, he said, hey, so I found this new thing and I want to try it. And I was like, yeah, you said that, so what's the thing? And he was just like, all right. So he took some tinfoil and unwrapped it. And it looked like a piece of bread, like a piece of white bread, any kind you'd find in a supermarket, like Wonder Bread or something. But it looked a little bit different. It was a lot more pale than you would find typical breads. And it was very moist as well. It looked slimy and gooey. And I didn't really trust it. But politely I asked, What is this? And Bert said, Well, what does it look like? I said, well, it looks like bread, you know. Wet bread, I guess. And Bert said, yeah, but what does the moistness look like? The moisture. And I was like, oh, I mean, I guess it kind of looks like milk. And then I thought about it, and I was just like, is it milk toast? And he was just like, yes. This is prime milk toast. And I was just like, I don't know if I want to I don't know if I want anything to do with milk toast, to be honest. And Bert said, listen, I know you've been going, raging at these parties for like the past week and a half or whatever. We always hang out and bond and all that jazz. And as your party friend, I want you to try some of this milk toast. So already, without my notice, he's just started to rip off a piece and started to eat it. I was like, alright, I guess I'll try a piece, you know. I am up for anything at Dave's parties. So I was chewing on it, and they said, make sure you chew it as much as possible, you know. You really want it to be really, like, mushy and blorbous before you swallow it. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I kept chewing on it like it was a piece of gum, but it was already deteriorating in my mouth. And eventually, it slid down my throat hole, you know, without my say-so, it just kind of smothered down. So I was like, alright, cool. And Bert would be all like, yeah, wait do you see. And I was like, okay. So I went back to the dance floor, you know. And I was boogieing, you know. Some premier dubstep was playing, you know. I start to feel pretty woozy, you know. I didn't know if it was the alcohol, the cannabis, the uh, random pill I took behind that couch cushion. And I was just like, oh, maybe it's kicking in, I don't know. So eventually I have to go to the bathroom. I tried to put it off as long as possible because once you go once, you just keep going. So I wait in the long line, and then it's my turn, so I go to the bathroom. Then I do my thing in there, there. And then I 
I look at myself in the mirror, and usually with the, in my experience, a new drug, the mirror is the last place you want to go. Because whatever distortion that drug has in your perception will immediately show in the mirror. I was just like, oh, what's gonna... I was getting nervous. I was like, what's gonna happen, you know? Is it gonna be like, oh, is it gonna look like the glass is melting and my reflection is just a distortion of myself? Or, or am I gonna get the spins or something? You know, what's gonna happen? But then I just looked and I just like, you know... Everything looks fine, you know? The effects of the other drugs I took didn't really, weren't really kicking in as much, and it just like, you know, it was as if I woke up on an early morning for work and I was looking at myself in the mirror and I was just like, ah, oh, this seems very plain, very average. So then I go exit the bathroom and I look the line of people, and everyone's just like very sweaty and breathing really he heavy. Everyone's talking louder than they really have to, and they're all straining their voice, and I could hear the crackles in their voice, you know? The exhaustion, you know, of frying your vocal cords when you speak loudly at a party or a club or something. And I was just like, huh. Then I got back to the dance floor, and also it looked very plain. The lights weren't as mesmerizing as when I was originally dancing, you know, and I started to notice how the fog machine was not in sync with the movements of the party. It was just a random thing that would go every several minutes or so. And I'd see people dance and, you know, it's okay if people aren't good dancers, but it was definitely a, the dance floor just kind of looked like a hot, sweaty mess, you know very plain and boring. And I was just like, what the fuck's going on? And eventually I step outside, uh, out of view of the street to smoke a cigarette. And I'm just like, yeah, the cigarette seems fine, you know. And I'm hearing other people smoke cigarettes and have conversations. And getting into, you know, that inebriated rambling that uh, people would get into four or five drinks in. But I was just like, yeah, I'm just capable of just a, you know, a well-paced, sober conversation. This is weird. What, what, what is this? So I go back into the house and try to track down Bert. And I'm just like, Bert, what the hell did you give me? And he was just like, it's crazy, right? And I was just like, what, what is this? And he was like, dude, milk toast. Stone cold sobriety, man. And I was like, no, this isn't quite sobriety. I've been sober plenty of times. At least for the first two decades of my life. Like, what, what is this? And he was just like, yeah, it's just milk toast, man. You know, you take it and you feel just like very plain and boring and dull. You know, it's fucking crazy. And I was just like, well, that defeats the purpose of taking party drugs or something like that, or whatever. And he was just like, no, man, you see, 
what a lot of drugs do, you know, they just like push the envelope of your perception or your way of being or something, you know, or certain feelings that you may have physically, you know. But this drug does the opposite. It just levels everything out and just makes everything super boring, you know. I mean, I wouldn't say that things are boring when it comes to stone cold sobriety. But this milk toast drug really kicks that into the highest gear. And I'm just like, dude, I feel like I'm an IRS accountant or something. And Bert was like, yeah, man, it's crazy, right? And I was just like, no, this sucks. I want to let loose, you know? Sow my wild oats and all that jazz, you know? That's why I come to these parties. I want to push the envelope. And he was just like, dude, what's a more insane envelope to push than a tax document envelope? And it starts freaking me out. And I just, I just leave. I try to think. I find a place on the couch. And someone's talking to me, talking to me very loud, and I'm very listening intently. I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. And I get up and I just leave, leave the party, and I just start going for a walk. You know, clear my head. You know, usually a walk would be good to sober up, but I didn't know, I didn't know if that would work in this case. And I was just like, fuck, how long would this, how long would this milk toast last? I don't know. It was so painful, so plain and dull, you know. So eventually I just call it quits and go to my house and and then when I uh, go to sleep, I wake up at around like at a reasonable hour, like between 8 and 9, and make myself some coffee and like an ample breakfast, you know. I didn't put any bacon, I didn't want anything greasy, you know, just uh, one egg and some green vegetables on it. I didn't add any herbs or spices, just I wanted the basic healthy ingredients, you know. finish breakfast it's like 10 o'clock right now I have the whole day rest the whole rest of the day for me before I go to Dave's so then I start doing chores around the house you know and I was just like oh maybe this is a good opportunity for some job hunting or something so I fill out some applications online you know and then I see that there's an availability at the IRS just like, oh, well, I'm good at counting. I think I can, I think I can do that kind of work, you know. No stranger to bureaucracy, I guess, you know, I can roll with it. So then I fill an application, and then it gets to the point where I don't even feel like going to Dave's, you know. Nor am I compelled to go to bed early, you know, I just spend the night in, you know. I don't do anything productive either, you know. I don't go into the workaholic realm of... Uh, so I just, you know, I just kind of sit quietly for a couple hours. Not really doing anything. Not on my phone, I'm not talking to anyone. Not watching anything, reading anything, learning anything. Just sitting quietly, you know. I stare at the wall for a bit, you know. And I'm just like, yeah, that's a nice wall. And then, uh, once I'm staring at the wall, five hours pass, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, what's happening? Life is passing me by on this milk toast drug. 
next day the same rhythm. I didn't even go to Dave's, I just went to sleep. And then I just, yeah, I just have an ample breakfast, ample sized meal, you know, with no flavor intensity or anything, just some basic stuff, you know. And then I just spare it, send, I just spend, I just, you know, I get my tasks done for the day and I just spend the rest of the time just like staring at a wall or something. And eventually, a week later, I'm not going to Dave's and just spending time to myself, not really doing anything. Not even, when I say I'm doing nothing, it's not even in a zen way when you're like meditating or contemplating. Not even the kind of nothing that's required every once in a while, uh, as distancing yourself from screens and really getting reacquainted with yourself. This was just pure, dull, boring nothing, you know? So I do get a call, and it's from the IRS, and they're just like, hey, do you want to come in for an interview? And I'm just like, yeah, sure, that sounds really cool. I didn't say it was really cool, you know. I didn't want to use that type of slang, you know. I say, oh yes, that sounds very excellent, thank you. It's something that I started doing, I just started saying thank you after every sentence, even when it was unwarranted, you know. So I go in for the IRS interview, and I bring in my CV, you know, as a degree that I earned in the previous jobs. So then we're just chatting, you know, about the weather, you know, things like that. And talking about, you know, yeah, just how monitoring uh, tax services is a very important thing, both in the country and just in the world in general, you know. And I was just like, yeah, it's very, yeah, this is, it's good stuff, you know? I'm thrilled to be here, I kept saying. And then he gave me an enthusiastic handshake. I reciprocated with a moderate grip. And he said, alright, well, let you know. He seemed pretty jovial about it, so... I was like, yeah, it's good, it's a good opportunity to work at the IRS. I'm pretty excited about it. So when I got back, I was so excited that I just... I just stared at the wall again until I went to sleep. And two days later, they call me back and say, hey, we want you in for the uh, IRS. You got that accountant job, you know, you'll be working for this region. I'd be like, oh, that's great, thank you. So then I go in for my first day of work at the IRS, you know? I pack my lunch, you know? Have a nice cheese and turkey sandwich with no condiments on it. Water to stay hydrated, you know. I was even feeling a little bit edgy and filled my thermos with some chicken noodle soup from a can. And I was just like, yeah, this is good, this is good. And then, you know, I'm sitting in my cubicle, you know, feeling good about my first day. I get along with everyone, you know. Hanging out by the water cooler, you know, just doing tax, you know, just going through tax documents. And if someone doesn't, uh, if someone is, if someone isn't up to snuff on how they record their taxes, I just like, you know, notify my superiors and then send them to their doom. But I don't think about it as doom. I just think about it as a good and important service. So yeah, so you know, it's going great so far at the IRS. 
and it was a really great month, month, first month working at the IRS, just getting to know everyone and everything like that, you know. I start to wave, ch change the way I dress a little bit, you know. I don't wear khakis, because that's a bit too edgy, you know, but I got some really plain checkered shirts. Occasionally I wear a plain tie, you know. And yeah, it's just it's going well, you know. I start doing this thing where I have a big pen in my ear, so I'm ready to, you know, jot some notes about the tax stuff at the IRS, you know. Good old-fashioned American bureaucracy, you know, that's what we joke about, you know. You know, some people at the IRS were also quiet, you know, they didn't really talk much. If I didn't know any better, I'd say they're, they were unhappy, but, you know, I would have no idea why. I was having a great time at the IRS, you know. And I was already scheduling my vacation, you know. I was just gonna go to the beach, you know. Usually what I like to do is just stare at walls in my house. But I was just like, oh no, yeah, this time I'll just sit on the beach, you know. It'll be, you know, it'll be a nice, typical American vacation. So one day when I'm working at the IRS, I run into Bird. And I'm just, I recognize him. I'm just like, oh, he seems familiar. Have I met him before? And Bert's like fumbling with a lot of like folders and whatnot, very uh, studious about it, you know. We were on our lunch break and he was like taking some notes about one thing or another. You know, working while lunch, you know. I always respected people like that, you know. Something I definitely strive for when it came to working at the IRS. So I go up to him and I say, hey, have we met before? And he's just like, oh yeah, hey, I'm Bert, you know, from Dave's party. And I thought, Dave. And then I vaguely remembered, yeah, I used to know a Dave. I did used to go to his parties. I don't really remember him too well. But yeah, I guess we did meet at um, one of his parties. Sure, how are you? You know? And he's just like, uh, I'm great, man. How about this? How about this drug? Am I right? And I say, what do you mean? And he's just like, the milk toast. It's fucking nuts, right? I've just been binging on it. And I thought, that's right. I did take a milk toast drug. And it did technically lead me here. So I guess I'm still high, I suppose. So I sat at a sat at the table at the in the lunchroom, in the break room, you know, with the pale yellow on the walls and all that. And I'm just like thinking about it, yeah, I took that drug and really really turned my life around, you know, and I started working for the IRS shortly afterwards. But then I'm thinking about it more, and I'm starting to think about my identity, and I'm just like, oh, did, did taking that one drug really spiral my identity into this person working at the IRS? And that's when I suddenly sobered up. The milk toast drug wore off. And I came back to myself and I realized, holy shit, I'm working at the IRS and I'm a government employee. And he was just like, I was just like, oh no, what have I done? All of this nonstop partying, 
with these mysterious floor drugs has now led me here. Oh no. And Bert went up to me and he's just like, oh, you're feeling alright, mister? And I was just like, oh, no, that's the, the drug wore off and I'm, I'm panicking, you know, realizing just like, oh no, where have I steered my life? So I'm working at the IRS, you know, I'm correcting tax information and sending impoverished families to their doom. Uh, this is awful. What have I done? What kind of work am I doing? And then Bert said, alright, take it easy. Take it easy, you're having a very vicious come down. I got something for you. So he pulled he pulled out his lunch bag. And then another piece of tinfoil. He unwrapped it, and it was another piece of toast. With that milky substance off substance off the that milky substance on it. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, I got some more milk toast. If you want more milk toast, I got that for you. Don't worry, you know. Yeah, the come down's really hard on this drug, you know. And I started panicking, and I'm just like, oh, you know, coping with myself of wanting to work at the IRS in the first place. I take some breaths, and I think, oh, well, if I take this drug again, it might send me back. But also, I don't want a aggressive come down. This, I'll do anything to trade away this panic. So I said, yes, I'll take a bite. I'll take a bite. And then he cuts off a piece with a plastic knife. And he sticks it on a plastic fork and he gives me the fork. And then without thinking, I eat it. I chew on it as long as I can. You know, until until it dissolves in my mouth and I just let it slide down my throat. And then, after a few minutes, I start to calm down. I don't know about you, but that story scared the shit out of me. Goddamn. Let's see what this next tale has to offer. Ah, yes. This one's called Delaware Jones and the Emerald Kidney. Now, if you were someone who had a class at Delaware County Community College at 9 in the morning, and if you sat in your class with your window at the right angle, you would always be able to see Delaware Jones sprint to his anthropology class on Tuesdays and Wednesdays because he was always late for it. It was like a three-hour class, so, you know, two days a week. But he was never an early riser, you know. So whenever 8.55 rolled around, he'd be like, oh, holy shit, I'm late. 
and then Delaware Jones would just sprint across campus and try to get to his class. It almost became a thing of folklore at DC Cubed. Anyone who knew his schedule was just like, oh, there goes Delaware Jones. Always late again. He's no Indiana Jones. Yeah, Indiana Jones would be on time. Not like Delaware Jones. And the people in his anthropology class knew him the best of all. Knew his schedule the best of all, rather. Just like, yeah, fucking Delaware Jones. He's late every goddamn day. Yeah, but so is Mozart. And then someone would chuckle and say, Ha! Delaware Jones is no Mozart. So it would be ten minutes after nine o'clock. And then Delaware would uh, fix his circle rim glasses and assort his, his books and whatnot, you know. And then once he finished setting up his books and his notes and stuff for the class that already started, since the professor has already started speaking, he would always sit there as if he was paying cold, cold, stone-cold attention the whole time. As if he never just stormed in and missed the first ten minutes of the lecture. No, he was just like, yes, I'm a very disciplined student, indeed. So on one Wednesday, on a morning when Delaware Jones was late, as he ran past the crunched leaves, professor uh, held him after class that day. And then Delaware said, yeah, do you want to see me, professor? And the professor said, yeah, Delaware, you know, you are the best student in my class. You always ask great questions. You always bring meaningful insight when you take a turn to speak. And you've done well in the exams and quizzes so far. But Delaware, you're always fucking late. Every single day, you're just stumbling in, and you somehow do better than everyone else. So, Delaware, being a bit hapless in certain ways, was just like, well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't wanna... You know, I wanna study, like, anthropology and archaeology and all that jazz but, you know it's, and it's not it's not with this college specifically but with any college I feel like any sort of college environment you know I feel like you know I just want to get out on the field do some like you know do some like field work something meaningful you know and the professor nodded and he was like, alright, so yeah, you're feeling like a big fish in a small pond kind of thing? And Delaware shrugged, you know, and Austin said, well, I guess I'm kind of feeling like that. But really, he mainly said that so he wouldn't get in trouble for any capacity. And then the professor said, alright, well, how about this then? I'm supposed to pick one student to send uh, to help curate uh, a new artifact at a museum in Philadelphia. If you're interested, I can send you over there. 
I mean, it's not like you're doing uh, anthropology field work or doing like a box pop kind of thing or anything like that. But you know, you'll just be out, you'll be meeting other professional archaeologists and anthropologists. So you can ask them any kind of questions you have, and you know, maybe it's a good way to build a network. Maybe they could send you to some sites or something. Or, you know, or when you travel abroad, you might have more of a, a better idea of where you want to go specifically, if you don't have one already. And Delaware Jones nodded, and he was just like, yeah, it sounds really cool. I think I'd be really into that. So, you know, that next month, uh, Del uh, Delaware spend, uh, takes two weeks off of his lessons and tries to do the coursework ahead of time so he can spend some time in Philly with a bit of leisure and also so that he can focus more on the task at hand, at hand which was just to study the artifact, you know, get to know it, take some notes about it, you know. He didn't really know anything beyond that. He didn't really know much about the artifact. Until it got there, that is. So I went to the, uh, Philadelphia Museum of Artifacts. And he was just like, alright, so, yeah, where is this thing? And, uh, one of the curators there was just like, yeah, follow me. And go through some long hallways, see a lot of cool things in the museum. You know, some dinosaur bones some fossils from different cultures in China and Africa. And then they get to the prize gem that they were going to put on display for the rest of the autumn season. And then when Delaware Jones saw it himself, he couldn't believe it. It was the Emerald Kidney. Is that what I think it is? And the curator says, yeah, we have the emerald kidney, you know? But I thought it was lost long ago in Mesopotamia. And the curator was just like, oh no, we, we found it, you know? The emerald kidney was exactly what you would expect it to be. It is a kidney that is also emerald as well, pure emerald. It was chiseled in a way, so it just looked very, very smooth. It looked like the most pristine of ceramic. It wasn't a Vlorbis uh, organ in the way other organs were. It was a solid state of a piece, but it did have an opening, so liquids can channel through it and whatnot. curator leaned towards Delaware and he was just like, you know, they say a lot of people coveted this artifact so that they could have the perfect bladder. And then Delaware and Jones said, oh yeah, I've heard the stories. I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. And the curator said, yeah, it's a, it's a real sight to behold. So Delaware said, so where did you get it, actually? And the curator said, and was a little bit bashful, and he 
said, well, you know, since you're going to be working closely with the artifact, I guess I'll tell you. And there's no uh, legislation that can stop us in this, but uh, we did, uh, we, we purchased it, you know, fair and square. But the person we purchased it from uh, was someone who stole it. Apparently during its history, uh, people have constantly been stealing the emerald kidney and keeping it under wraps so no one would be caught by the law. But with the artifact laws, you know, in the United States, we were able to purchase it fair and square, you know? And Delaware Jones looked puzzled. And he said, So, it doesn't belong in a museum. And the curator said, Well, if you want to get to... If you want to get... To, if you want to be moral about it, then perhaps not. I mean, you could argue that many artifacts displayed in museums actually belong in the rightful cultures that they were developed in, or by the families of the creators of those artifacts. And that argument also can be told for art pieces as well, you know? In fact, other people would argue that, uh, you know, that certain systems in uh, property ownership, when it comes to artifacts such as these, are geared towards, uh, you know, Western colonizers so that they can own it indefinitely, you know, and the people they take it from can have no legal precedent to take it back. But I'm certainly not arguing that. And Delaware Jones remained silent, and he said, Well, you know what? I would argue it. And the curator said, What do you mean? And Delaware Jones having a heart of gold, despite his foibles. It was all like, yeah, this this artifact should go back to where it originated from, where it was crafted, you know. Maybe we can track down the family or the dynasty where it came from or whatever. And then, you know, curator shrugged. He was just like, oh yeah, well, no anthropologist or archeologist will put in that much work to put an artifact back to where it came from. And Delaware nodded and thought, Oh, well, we'll see about that. So during the two weeks, yeah, he went through the tasks of maintaining the uh, artifact and whatnot. But also during that time, he was reading a lot of books about the history legends of the Emerald Kidney. I was really trying to figure out, you know, is there a legal precedent to take it away from this museum and bring it back to Mesopotamia? Mesopotamia area, rather. But he didn't have any luck on that regard. He did track down his place of origin. Delaware Jones is like, alright, maybe if I can get it there, get it to that building, to that town, but how to be able to steal an artifact like that? So as the weeks went by, you know, Delaware was kind of scoping the place out, getting to know the security systems, the alarm systems, where the cameras were pointed, where the blind spots were, 
unfortunately for him, you know, it would have been very difficult for someone to steal the Emerald Kidney. That is, until someone else beat him to it. It was when he was working a late night, you know, he claimed to do it as like a form of like extra credit, just to learn as much as he could about the museum uh, curation process when it came to archaeology and anthropology and all that jazz. But during that night, you know, an alarm went off, you know? And I was just like, ah, oh, someone's stolen the Emerald Kidney. And there are two other curators that Delaware Jones was working under. And they were just also being frantic about it as they were working in the same office. So the two curators go to speak with security. But then Delaware Jones kind of branches off. Now knowing, uh, going through... Analyzing security during those two weeks made him think, well, if I was going to steal it, how would I do it? But then he knew that the museum had a kitchen area, and he considered that to be the best point of entry to break an, enter break, break an entry and then have the minimal security tsunami that would fall upon you. So what he did is he left the building and then broke back around to the kitchen area. And then, lo and behold, he saw some jewel thieves loading some gear into a van. They were going as fast as possible, the engine was running, and young Delaware Jones, he didn't know what to do. He was just like, oh, I gotta do the right thing. quick instinct, he just sprints towards them. He runs into one who's holding the emerald kidney, and the thief drops the em emerald kidney. And then also, Delaware Jones pulls out a notepad and then drops it on the ground. And then they both fall to the floor. And not really caring about how dangerous these jewel thieves were, Delaware was just like, Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm running so late. Uh, I'm an intern here and I just gotta, you know, I gotta meet with the curators because of the robbery. So then, as quickly as he could, Delaware just grabs the, uh... Grabs the jewel and then sprints and runs. He runs as fast as he can. He's at a park somewhere sees it in his pocket, you know. The emerald kidney. He tries to think fast, you know. So with his hands, he just buries it underneath the tree and then heads back to the museum. And eventually he rendezvous with the two curators working there. And one of them says, where the hell have you been? And then Delaware Jones says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I don't know if my professor told you this, but I'm always late. And then one of them said, well, yeah, but, you know, this is very serious, you know, someone's taken a lot of gear here, a lot of artifacts, you know. 
And we just caught them, you know. And Delaware said, oh, really? And then one of the curators said, yeah, yeah, we got them. The police booked them and all that. And we got all the artifacts back. Except for the emerald kidney. And then uh, Delaware Jones says, ah, oh, it's so, it's so weird. Maybe they dropped it or something. And they were just like, yeah, that's what they said. You know, they just dropped it. It's not in their van. It's not on their person or anything. They were about to do searches on all of us, so none of us took it. And then, you know, Delaware nodded and said, oh, well, I can abide by that. So security and the police did searches on everyone. They didn't find anything on Delaware Jones. So when the dust settled on the adrenaline of that situation, you know, both the curators and Delaware left the facility. But then Delaware Jones uh, goes to the tree and then unburies the emerald kidney. He had this rare, mysterious artifact to do whatever he wanted with it. He was just like, alright, I'm gonna... I'm gonna work and bring this back where this belongs. And then, uh, as he returned to school, when he went to that anthropology class, for the first time all semester, he was on time. One more spook in my arsenal. And this one is called... And then, the blinker followed. drive together. It was hard to find things to do since the pandemic hit. They tested on a regular basis. They wore masks in public and only went out in public for necessities, whether it was shopping or protesting or something of the sort. But they, they wouldn't go to any bars or anything like that, or clubbing. 
so they kind of had to make their own fun while also being responsible, you know, for themselves and other people when it comes to health and COVID-19 and whatnot. So one thing they would do is they just go on long drives. They'd always wait until the sun was going to set. It was something Lucy and Sandra would always do, it was like a date night kind of thing. Just like, yeah, let's just go driving, you know? We wouldn't always go great distance, but you know. They would just like, you know, stroll through neighborhoods, maybe get some fast food or something. way of having fun. It was a way for them to bond, you know, and also their germs were self-contained in the car. And you know what? They really enjoyed it. It was definitely, uh, it was a peak romantic period during a very dark period. So on one of these drives, They started, they were driving longer than usual. They didn't often stay up, stay out late because they never knew what the police were up to. But it was about 11 at this time and they were kind of thinking about like heading back, you know, or something. And then Sandra said, Lucy, do you see that in the rearview mirror? And Lucy's like, what? And then Sandra's just, Sandra was just like, oh, it's that, look. So Lucy looked into the mirror, and she saw a blinking light. And it was coming from the sky, but it also could have been from the top of a very tall vehicle. she couldn't put her finger on what it actually was from her vantage point from her vantage point it looked like she was following her so getting a little bit nervous about it she just makes a random turn and then yeah the the blinker still followed sky, like a comet or something, like a satellite or a plane. This is like, no, I don't think it's any plane. And they kept watching it, you know. It was at a very rhythmic blinking, you know. Like a very moderate strobe light or something. And the light shine as if the sunlight was shining off a sh satellite, and it gets really bright for like a split second. And it was just that over and over. Maybe it would have been a beautiful sight in a different instance or a different context. 
just made Lucy and Sandra nervous. So they're trying to think, just, I don't know what I can, what, what do we do about this? And Lucy said, well, I know we said we were going to head back, but I'm just going to drive for a bit, see if we can lose it or something, you know. I don't know. And then we run out of ideas. If it seems like a long time, we'll head back to the house. You have knives at the house, so whatever this thing is, maybe we can handle it, you know? And Sandra's just like, oh, Lucy, that seems like a lot, though. And Lucy was just like, well, you know what? If some mysterious blinker is following us, we gotta, you know, take precautions and all that jazz. And Sandra's just like, alright, well, let's, let's, let's drive for a bit and see how that goes. So they just keep driving. Driving all throughout the night. About 20 minutes go by, and still, the blinker in the sky keeps going with its rhythmic, consistent blinking. And then Lucy starts to panic a little bit more. Like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna drive to the house. I'm just gonna floor it. And then she does so. So, and then Sandra kind of grips the her seat a little bit and the handle on the roof of the car. And she starts to panic too, you know. Probably at a different scale because she wasn't the one driving. But needless to say, their actions were fueled by panic. Eventually they get onto a, a busy, fast road that will lead them to their neighborhood and they start driving even faster because no one else is on the street or anything, you know. Move faster and faster. The blinker's still following. They watch the lines on the road disappear beneath the car. The longer they drive, the brighter the blinker becomes. It just keeps blinking and blinking. And then the light gets brighter. It's blinking faster and blinking brighter. It motivates Lucy to drive faster. Lucy just gets into a panic and that's just floors it as deep as he can as she can. Driving fat the fastest she's ever driven in a car. She can barely like see what's ahead of her. And then Sandra just shouts her name, Lucy, Lucy, calm down, be careful. They're both panicking at this point. Suddenly, the light gets brighter and blinks faster to the point where the light just fills up the entire inside of the car.
still driving. Still hearing the sound of an engine. But then Lucy can't even see where she's going. And that's when she crashes. And she realizes what happened. The car is totaled in front of a tree. Luckily, both of their airbags deployed, so their damages are, were relative, you know. Sandra had a broken nose. You know, it seems like Lucy kind of had like a little bit of whiplash. And they both had bruising on their body. But all things considered, they are relatively safe from the crash. Especially at that speed, they consider themselves lucky. But didn't have time to consider it. As the lights still filled up the car. And eventually the light filled up. And then it centralized the Jason to Lucy's passenger window. And then Lucy stared into it. She tries to, it's so bright, but it doesn't sting her eyes. And she tries really hard to figure out what she's really looking at, but it's just this pure celestial light. And then the light said, Do you know why I pulled you over? And Lucy was just like, What? And the light said, You were panicking. You were defying the laws of the cosmos by not being centered, by not having a sense of oneness, for not being zen as fuck. And Lucy's just like, Fuck. And Sandra's just like, What the fuck's going on? Is this, is this light a space cop or something? And then the light said, uh, I'm an interdimensional cosmic cop, man. And I'd like to see both of your IDs. And Lucy just said, oh, fuck you, like under her breath, but not loud enough for the strange celestial light to hear. So she pulls out her ID and the light says, oh, you too, you too. Sandra just pulled out her ID as well. I was just like, oh, god damn it. They didn't know how to hand the ID to the light, so they just kind of like hold up their IDs. And the light said, no, not your, mort not your mortal country ID. I mean your soul ID. And Lucy was just like, well, how do we, how do we show that then? The celestial light just says, Oh, you just gotta, you know, meditate for 20 minutes and then you feel a sense of oneness, and then I can see what what piece of fabric you are in the tapestry of the universe, you know? So come on, get to it. And Lucy was just like, Oh, god damn it. Can I do it outside the car? And the light said, Yes, that's fine. So Lucy and then Sandra both step out of the car, still with their injuries. All they see is just their car the surrounding grass and tree, and then just a white light that just surrounded them. 
as well as the centralized light that floated by their car and spoke to them. So Lucy sat down and, despite the circumstances, tried to meditate, you know, tried to feel relaxed, feel that sense of calm, that sense of nothingness and oneness you feel during meditations. Samantha sits on the ground as well, and she's just, I've never, like, really meditated before. Like, how do you do this? And the celestial light is just like, well, I can provide, I'll provide a ticking clock, you know, like, a, the sound of a ticking sound. I won't do 60 beats per minute, because some of you humans get paranoid about the, uh, about the mechanics of time for some reason. So I'll just do a, you know, I'll do 50 beats per minute, and then I'll just do that, uh, ticking sound and you just focus on the ticking sound and let yourself like melt into it and so Sandra was just like all right so just she just sat and tried to meditate Lucy was already in the groove this one then once Sandra started to figure it out a little bit they were both sitting still for 30 minutes said, oh, I see. Okay, you both can stop now. And we'll go back to your mortal, ego-filled, you know, sensibilities. And at this point, Lucy and Sandra are pretty pissed off by the whole affair. And then the light said, you know why I pulled you over? And then Lucy said, you already asked us this. It said that we were, like, panicking or something. I get it. We closed ourselves off to the greater cosmic scheme bro, you know, we, we get it, we'll be more chill about it, but there was a blinking light, which was apparently a space cop behind us, so yeah, I don't mind getting a little bit flustered by that prospect. So then the, uh, the cosmic light says, alright, I'm gonna need to see some ID, and then Lucy's just like, oh fuck, come on, and Sandra's just like, are you shitting me? And then the light says, come on, I gotta, you gotta meditate. And then just grumbling about it, Lucy and Sandra both sit on the ground again and clock into meditation once again. You know, they it went into a deeper place with it, you know, because they've already done it, done it once before and they're already cued into it, so to speak. And then they both got, uh, an hour went by, and they both got exhausted by it. And they're just like, alright, we're done meditating now. Kinda had enough of this, you know. And then they stand up again, and the celestial light says, Do you know why I pulled you over? And then Lucy's just like, alright, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm heading out, I'm just walking off. And Sandra's just like, but Lucy, and Lucy's just like, no, what's gonna, I'm gonna, no, I'm just gonna walk into this mysterious white light, I don't care if we, if we died in the car crash or whatnot, I don't want to spend an eternity being pulled over by a space cop, like, I'm out of here. And Sandra, reluctantly, follows Lucy into the mysterious light that surrounded the car and the tree and the grass beneath them. So they continue to walk cosmic light still waiting by the car and they're just walking in this white light surrounding the grass 
They don't know how long they walked. It might as well have been an eternity, based on their metric of time in this mysterious place. hear the sound of synthesizers as they're walking and they're just like alright, let's uh, take a breath let's sit and recalibrate they hear a synthesizer in the distance and they're just sitting in the grass, you know and Sandra was just like well we could just live here now and then Lucy was just like I don't know I don't want to do that distance within the white light they see she sees a blinking light this time it's a deep dark purple like an ultraviolet type of purple she's just like oh shit and then Lucy's like what and Sandra says it's another blinker Lucy's just like really and then Sandra's just like yeah so they both stand up and look at it to face it, and they just wait for it to come head on. And then a purple light comes their way. And the purple light says, Do you know why I pulled you over? And Lucy said, Oh, because we're pissed off that we're in this weird light place, being harassed by cosmic cops and whatnot. said oh no it's because you're dead this is your afterlife and Lucy was just like oh fuck what do you mean no we're dead and then the purple light said well you know you're kind of like in, in that like you know the in-between place or whatever you want to call it purgatory lim purgatory limbo etc What about that white light that tracked us down while we were living? And the purple light said, oh yeah, we've we've dealt with that entity, you know. It's kind of a real asshole in the force, you know. The cosmic force that is. And then Lucy was just like, nah, I don't no, I don't I don't like interdimensional uh, puns by cosmic law enforcement, you know. And the fact that that there is cosmic law enforcement that's pretty bogus anyway you know you know the universe as i see it is just like this non-sentient thing you know like the flowing of an ocean or kids at recess or something you know not like you know not just like some light that's just like oh i'm a cop you know that seems pretty faulty and then the light was just like well you two are interpreting this afterlife as you see fit you know I probably would be just some random floaty thing in space or in quantum space or whatever, but uh, yeah, you're just seeing me as a, you know, that's just some like a speed trap cop, you know? 
then Lucy says, alright, well, is there a way to make it back to the living somehow? Purple light said, "Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, like you're in the in-between plate. You're in the in-between space, so you can still possibly make it back. But I got to do something first. I need to see some ID." And then Lucy and Sanders are like, oh, "Fuck this!" So they sit down and they start meditating again. Except when they, once they clock into it, once they fade out. They start to awaken in the car with medics surrounding them. Each of them are on a gurney being analyzed by paramedics that are taking that, that came by. There's an ambulance light blinking at a rhythmic pace next to their car. And Lucy and Sandra both look at each other, just being thankful that they're alive not fully understanding what the blinker was or why they were pulled over if that's what was happening they were just happy to you know spend some time together and spend this life together you know it wasn't how they initially uh, planned their date they were just thankful that they were together. Well, that was Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. Welcome to quarantine. Alright, see how this goes. <laughs> 